Well, if you have your Bible today, can you guess which book of the Bible we're going to be in? Turn to Romans chapter 10, and we'll be today in Romans 10 verses 12 and 13 as we keep walking through this beautiful letter in the Word of God. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, it's on page 946 in the Black Pew Bible that's around you. Let's read together. I'm going to start at verse 9, and our text today for the sermon will be verses 12 and 13. But starting at verse 9, it says, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is, here's our text for today, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You may have heard it said before, and I I actually repeated it in our uh, congregational prayer together, that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Now that saying is, is not a Bible verse, but I think it gets at the concept of the Bible that's very clear. It's not talking about that if you went to, uh, to Jerusalem and saw the hill where Jesus was crucified, that there would be flat ground. That's not what it's talking about. The idea is that as we come to Christ, as we look to Jesus who was crucified, as we come to him in faith, that God is no respecter of persons. That God doesn't say, oh, well, you have a little bit of a leg up as compared to that other person in in coming to Jesus because of this or because of that. No, when we come and we stand before Christ, when we behold by faith Christ and Christ crucified for our sins, there is no distinction that he makes between us. It's a beautiful thing. It's not a distinction in terms of how much money you have or what your background is, or how old you are. It's not a background in how many sins you have committed or not committed, or the seriousness that you consider your sins to have, or the lack of seriousness that you consider your sins to have. But this great thing happens when someone comes to faith in Jesus, that we come and we behold Christ by faith. We understand that he is the Lord of lords and King of kings who was crucified personally, for personal sins and that we can come to him in faith and be saved. This amazing thing happens when you come to Jesus that you feel like that you're the only person whose sins that he died for. You feel like you're the only person who knows him like this. You feel that you have his absolute undivided attention like nobody else could possibly be experiencing this, but then we also can take a step back and realize that behind us and around us at the foot of the cross are millions upon millions of other people that he's brought in from every tribe and tongue and nation with all kinds of situations that are so different from us, and yet he's able to love each and every individual with that personal, forgiving, saving love as we come to him at the foot of the cross. And that's what this passage is about. It's about the fact that no matter who you are, what your background is, that there is level ground at the foot of the cross. Now, we've just been through some verses, and I I just read the verses that we were in last week that have some of the plainest words in the Bible about how a sinner can come to be saved, how a sinner can come to Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins and for eternal life. It's very plain. We believe in our heart. When you believe in your heart, you are justified, and then it flows out of your mouth that you want to profess that faith in Jesus as well. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's what it says. So plain. I want us to remember, too, that those verses are are verses that are very good to pull out when you're sharing the gospel with someone. And, and if you don't have the context of everything around them, that's okay. They still get the message across, but there is a context of what's around them. And just to remind us that Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11 are all devoted to, to being the section of the book of Romans that's asking the big question, what's going on with the fact that so many of the Jewish people have not embraced Jesus as their Savior? 
Jesus is the one who was promised all the way from back in Genesis 3.15 as the, the Messiah, the, the seed of the woman who was going to come and, and have, uh, you know, be harmed in some way but crush the head of the serpent. That's what happened at the cross. All the way through the Old Testament, these predictions, some of them very, very clear about what was going to happen. You know, you, you, if, if you read um, Isaiah chapter 53 and, and you didn't know that it was in the Old Testament, you would think it was in the New Testament because it's just so directly talking about Jesus. And so the question is, how could it be that such a large percentage of the Jewish people have rejected the Jewish Savior? In fact, the Jewish God, the God of the Old Testament, came in the flesh and gave himself up for us. And so how could it be that so many of his own people did not recognize him? So that's what this is dealing with. But what we're coming to today is the fact that whether it's Jew or Gentile or any classification of people that you could possibly think of, there is one way of salvation, one Savior, one Lord over all. As I said just a second ago, level ground at the foot of the cross. Same Savior, same salvation. And the first thing that he says is that there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. That's verse 12. No distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all. Now what does that mean? No distinction between Jew and Greek, or Greek there was a summary word for Gentile. It could have said not just Jew and Greek, but Jew and everybody else. And, and, and when we're thinking about these distinctions between ethnic backgrounds, boy, that's something that it, it kind of seems to never stop being a hot-button issue, does it? When, when you're talking about, well, how do we as humans, how do we relate to the fact that, that some humans come from different backgrounds than each other, that we have different languages, we have different skin colors, we have different ethnicities, we have all of these things that seem to be pretty distinguishing marks between this group and that group. And the main way that they were dealing with that in the church at Rome is that there were Jew, Jewish believers and there were Gentile believers, and there's all kinds of stuff that had happened in the church at Rome and in the city of Rome that had made this an especially prone place for them to feel that difference. In particular, all of the Jews had been driven out of Rome at the order of the emperor for a number of years. And so, so this church had, had sort of begun to grow and thrive as an exclusively Gentile church, but now that these Jews are being allowed back into Rome, they, there's, there are Jewish believers in Jesus who are coming into the church and they're kind of feeling this tug. They're feeling this difference. We've got this group of people and we've got that group of people and they've got different backgrounds religiously. They've got different backgrounds culturally. And of course, there's all of these questions that are mixed in there as well. Uh, just religiously, dealing with the Old Testament. So it's not just an ethnic thing. It's also, well, what about the whole history of Israel? How does that play into it? Some of the questions that it seems like that they would have had about this, one of those questions would be, do Jews and Gentiles have a different way of getting their sins forgiven? Now, he's already been very clear about this throughout the book of Romans, but he's going to be very clear about this here, too. Absolutely not. Jews and Gentiles do not have different ways of getting their sins forgiven. It's always and only through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross and through faith in him. But another question is, is Jesus more of a savior to Jewish people than he is to Gentiles because he was the Jewish Messiah and because it says that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek? Does that make Jesus more of a savior to Jewish people? Then another question that they would have had is, is that there's something inherently better about Jewish people because of their background and because of their history of that people with God. Or maybe there were some within the church at Rome who were thinking, is there something inherently worse about Jewish people that's evidenced by the fact that such a small percentage of them had turned to faith in Jesus, that it seemed to be that these churches were growing as primarily Gentile churches, and some of them were probably tempted to turn around and think, well, what's wrong with those Jewish people? 
So all of these questions are kind of bubbling up, but what the text says here in verse 12 is there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. There is no distinction. Now, for one thing, we have to recognize that that can't mean that there is no noticeable difference whatsoever. If there were no noticeable difference whatsoever, then it wouldn't make sense even to anybody to say the words Jew and Gentile. Nobody would have any idea what you're talking about. There has to be some noticeable difference just to to mention those different categories. So how is it that he is saying that there is no distinction? Well, what he says here is something that we can, can look in the Scriptures and kind of see how is it that God views humanity how is it that people God, uh, how is it that God views people from different kinds of backgrounds and different ethnicities, whether it's Jew or Gentile or all kinds of other categories? How does God see that? Where are there distinctions? And where are there not distinctions? Here's where we need to get down to our theological categories as we look at our Bible, as we think about who we are as humans. God works through creation and providence. Okay, The way that God carries out his plans or his decrees are in two ways. One is creation. How has he made the world? How has he made the universe? How has he made us as human beings? That's one thing. And then another thing is that he works through providence. How has he directed the events of the world? So what we need to see is that as we recognize that there are categories that that are kind of obvious that you can point out about human ethnicities, human backgrounds, that those are things that are distinctions in providence. They're not distinctions in creation. They're not distinctions in our fallenness into sin. And they're not distinctions in how we are redeemed. But there are distinctions in how we have providentially come to the place where we are and the backgrounds that we have. Let me just read you some scripture that show this. In Acts chapter 17, verse 26, it says, He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. And then here comes the providential distinctions. Having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. You just think about that. All of humanity, as, as, as God started to spread humanity out from the Tower of Babel, and they, they began to spread out all across the earth. And you have the whole history of Western civilizations and Eastern civilizations and, and Native American civilizations and all of these continents and these places and these tribes and, and people beginning to look more like each other over here and more like this group over here and speaking different ways and developing different cultures, all those kinds of things. It says right there in Acts chapter 17 that that is in the providence of God. God determined the allotted periods. God determined the boundaries of their dwelling place. He even says that there are distinctions in some ways within the Jewish people back in verse 9, or excuse me, Romans 9 verse 4. He says, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever." Amen. So there is nothing wrong with us recognizing that God in his providence has given different human beings different backgrounds. That is just fine. Where the problem starts to come in is when we think that that therefore means that there is a distinction in creation or a distinction in fallenness or a distinction in redemption. The temptation among some people, in fact, among an awful lot of people, maybe even among all people, is to look at other groups outside of their own group and to say, my group is superior to that group because. Or sometimes there's a temptation to say, my group is inferior to that group because. There's a, a very popular way of looking at that in our own society right now that says these groups are inherently oppressed. These groups are inherently oppressors. But there's all kinds of ways to look at that. What we need to do is we need to say there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. And in fact, when we're talking about who we are in our created status, 
who we are in our fallenness and who we are in how we need to be redeemed by Christ, it's not just that there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, it's that there is no distinction between anyone at all. In creation, how is it that God has created us? Well, that's the beginning part of Acts 17, 26. I I was emphasizing the ending part earlier where it says that he determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. But what it says at the beginning of that verse is, he made from one man every nation of mankind. You hear that? He made from one man every nation of mankind. What that tells us right there is that we all have a common ancestry. And that common ancestry is pretty embarrassing when you get down to it. That we all come from Adam, we are all fallen in Adam, but we all have essentially the same nature. There is no distinction in how God made us. None of us is more in the image of God than the rest of us. None of us is less in the image of God than the rest of us. Genesis 1.27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, of course, the image of God in us is marred by sin. It's kind of twisted. It looks weird when there's sin. God is renewing and redeeming that image by the image of Christ who saves us. But when we get down to the reality of who we are as created beings, that's one way that we can say there is no distinction, even though God directed different circumstances, different distinctions in providence. There's no distinction in creation. Another way that there's no distinction is in our fallenness. I already said this. We come from an embarrassing ancestor. But it's not just embarrassing because of him. It's because we were in Adam. We are all fallen in Adam. We are all fallen. It said back in Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. That's us. You, you can't look and say, well, this group of people is way worse than that group of people. This group of people is inherently more sinful than that group of people, or this group of people is inherently incapable of sin because of what they've been through and the hard times that they've had. No, he says right here, there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, and this is one of the ways. We all sinned in Adam, and we all have that sin nature. He said back in Romans 2.9, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. There is a fallenness and there is eternal punishment for all sinful, fallen human beings who do not repent and turn to faith in Jesus Christ. Jew, Greek, any category. He says in Romans 3.22, There is no distinction. Here's how he says there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is no distinction in our fallenness, but there's no distinction in the redemption that we have in Jesus Christ either. Right after he says there's no distinction, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, the next thing it says is, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. There is so much packed in there. I almost want to just go back and preach my whole sermon again on that passage. But what it's saying is, not only are we all fallen in sin, but we all have in front of us the same path of salvation, which is the fact that Jesus came and died And that he is the Lamb of God who was slain. And as it says in Revelation 5, 9, that by his blood he ransomed for himself a people from every tribe and tongue and nation. We are justified by his grace as a gift. There's nobody who's justified by works. Even if they have a background of religion that would say, oh, in this family we try to be good so we can go to heaven. Even those who felt that they could be right with God by observance of the Jewish law, he says, no, there is no distinction between Jew and Greek in how we're redeemed. It has to be by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The only one who was given as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. The sacrifice to satisfy the wrath of God for our sin that we can receive not by working for it, not by being from this group or that group, but by faith in the personal Lord, 
Jesus Christ. He says in Acts 4.12, or this is Peter speaking to the Jewish council, it says, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That's how there is no distinction. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all. There's not two Gospels. There are some systems out there that will tell you that there are different Gospels for different groups of people. There are systems out there that will tell you that for Jewish people, there is the Gospel of the Kingdom, and that for Gentiles, there is the Gospel of Grace. There's not a whole lot of people still teaching this. It was a pretty popular way of teaching about 100 years ago. Fortunately, it's largely been abandoned, but you'll still hear hints of that every once in a while. You'll still hear people say, well, God is going to save all Jewish people by virtue of the fact that they are Jewish people. And Gentiles, though, they can only be saved by specifically and explicitly coming to faith in Christ. That's not what the Bible says. The same Lord is Lord of all. He doesn't say bestowing riches on all Jews and then only Gentiles who call in the name of Christ. He says, no, bestowing the riches of his salvation on all who call on him. This is the way that there's no distinction. We are all created the same, we are all fallen the same, and we are all redeemed the same, which is, is, is only through faith in Jesus Christ. But completely through faith in Jesus Christ. Mm. So what should we do with that? Just thinking about that no distinction. What, what are some things we can do with it? Well, well, one is, this ought to be obvious, but sometimes we just got to say the obvious things too, right? Don't look down on another human being because of their ethnicity or their background. Don't do that. At the same time, don't elevate another human being because of their ethnicity or their background. Don't deceive yourself into thinking that you have less of a need for forgiveness or a different way of salvation than somebody around you. No, there is no distinction. We're sinners who are in need of a Savior who is Jesus alone. And don't treat others as though their background is somebody is, is going to rule them out as somebody to share the gospel with. There is no distinction. And so when you come across someone who you want to tell them the gospel and they say to you, no thank you, I'm Jewish, we say, there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all. When someone says to you, no thank you, I'm Buddhist or Muslim or whatever else, or even if they don't say that to you, but you think to yourself, I don't know if I want to share the gospel with this person, because I know their background, and they're not the kind of person who's likely to believe. Neither were you or me. We're fallen sinners. It's a miracle of God. We can share the gospel with anybody and everybody. And that gets us into the next thing that he says here, is that the same Lord is Lord of all. The same Lord is Lord of all. There is no distinction for the same Lord is Lord of all. He will, uh, he will save everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. Now, one of the things that you may not have quite noticed here, but is in the text here, is the fact that Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is the great I Am. This passage says it. In fact, this passage is my go-to passage when I talk to Jehovah's Witnesses. Whether they, well, they don't come to our house anymore. They, they marked us off the list. I ran into a very, very nice man uh, in Hazlitt a couple weeks ago who was, he was actually picking up trash out of a parking lot. And I thought it was, I thought it was trash from his office or something, but he just turned out to be a Jehovah's Witness who saw trash and he was trying to do a community service and, and pick it up. And, and so, so we started picking up trash together and talking about Jesus, but we were not talking about the same Jesus. And, and he was out there doing good works, but in the name of a false hope. It's, it's, it's so sad to think about, but the, the teaching among Jehovah's Witnesses is that Jesus is a created being. They would say that the God of the Old Testament created Jesus as his first creation, that Jesus is therefore not God, that you might call him a God with a little g, but that he's not God, but that he is the first creation. 
Well, I, I want you to just look at, look at the Bible here, okay? You're going to have to point your eyes down into the text of Romans 10 to see this with me, okay? Look, look back at what it says in verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, okay? And, and then it says here in verse 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, and in verse 12 as well, for the same Lord is Lord of all. Who are we calling Lord here? We're calling Jesus Lord. We're calling Jesus Lord and even saying that if you don't confess that Jesus is Lord, that you're not going to be saved. But that's a distinguishing mark between those who are and are not Christians is that we're willing to say Jesus is Lord. Now why am I, I drawing you to that? Because verse 13 is not just verse 13 of Romans 10. It's also a quotation from Joel 2.32. Here's what Joel 2.32 says, and, and this was read at the beginning of the service. Thanks, Mike, for doing that. It says, It shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Okay, let me get you one more point of information here. Joel 2.32, when it says Lord... In my ESV Bible, that's all caps, Lord. Do you know what that means? It's translating the name there, Yahweh. Or as it's put in the King James, Jehovah. Here's why this is my go-to passage with Jehovah's Witnesses. It's because they claim that Jehovah and Jesus are two different beings. And you have right here in Romans 10, 13... The fact that in calling on the name of Jesus, we are calling on the Jehovah, the Yahweh, the great I Am of the Old Testament. It says it plainly, I have never had a Jehovah's Witness give me a good answer to that, and so that might be a good one to keep in your back pocket, to try to show them, hey, this Bible, even your terrible translation of it that you bring around to my house, says right here, that Jesus is the Yahweh of the Old Testament, not a created being of God, not a lesser than God God. He is the Lord of all. But Jesus also said that plainly. You don't just have to go there. Jesus said very plainly that he is Lord. He, he, he claims the name of God for himself. The, the name that God gave himself back in Exodus chapter 3, when, when Moses says, to, to God as he's at the burning bush and being given this commission to go and to be a prophet to the people of Israel. He says, what is his name? Who shall I say to them? Uh, what shall I say to them when they ask what is his name? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord or Yahweh the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. That's where that name Yahweh comes from, from the root I am. It's expressing that God is eternal. It's expressing that God is, has no needs for anyone to give him anything, that he is completely self-sufficient, has always been is and always will be. As it's put in Revelation that he is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the great I am. Keeping that in mind, here's what Jesus says in John 8. Jesus says to these Jewish rulers who were questioning him, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. See, they understood exactly what he was saying. Before Abraham was, I am. He was saying, I am the great I am. And it says here in this passage that this is the Jesus. This is the Savior that we must call on. The one that we recognize not just as a good teacher, not just as a great man, but as the great I am. The God-man who has come taken on human nature as even as he retained the fullness of his God nature and went as the God-man to the cross to die for our sins and to rise from the dead so that he could be enthroned forever as Lord. And we call on him as Lord, and he is the same Lord that is the Lord of all peoples. Just a reminder, too, 
When, when Thomas had first doubted about Jesus being raised from the dead, you remember what he said that he wanted to see? He said, I, I want to see the holes in his hands. I want to put my fingers in them. I want to put my hand into the hole in his side where the spear went. Then I'll believe that he rose from the dead. Well, the next Sunday, Jesus came and met with his disciples together again, and Thomas was there. And he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Do you know what Thomas said to him? He answered, my Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. This is what it's saying here, that we cry out and we confess Jesus is Lord. We call on the name of the Lord. We know that he is Lord of all, just like Thomas would have, I, I just imagine if dropping to his knees, I don't know if he did, but saying, my Lord and my God, worshiping him. Now, did Jesus say what the angels say when people accidentally worship the angels and they say, no, I am not God, worship God, I'm, I'm a created being. No, here's what he says in response to that. Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. Mm. Amen. Amen. Then he says that he is the Lord of all. I've said this over and over, but think about what that means, that he is Lord of all peoples. He is Lord of all peoples, Lord of all nations. Is Jesus only the Lord of the Gentiles and not the Lord of the Jews? No, he's the Lord of both. Is he only the Lord of the Jews and not the Lord of the Gentiles? He is both. Is he the Lord of America and not the Lord of Uganda? He is the Lord of all. Everybody, everywhere, whether they've recognized it or not, whether they have set up some other Lord as their master that they would serve, Jesus is still in charge. He is still in charge. He is Lord of all. And the beautiful thing is that even as he's Lord of all, he has chosen and redeemed a people for himself who would know that he is Lord of all who would submit to him by faith. He is Lord of all, and he has in his sovereignty willed to redeem people from all kinds of backgrounds. This is why you have that song in Revelation 5, 9, that they're singing in heaven, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Boy, that makes me want to pick apart what that means. Jesus is Lord, but they shall reign. But here's the point we're getting at today. Jesus is Lord of all. Now, whatever kind of background somebody is from, they can call on the name of the Lord and be saved. He's Lord over all nations. By the way, this is a reason that Jesus gives why we don't have to be scared when we do evangelism. In the Great Commission, when he tells his disciples, this is the end of Matthew 28, most of us know what Jesus instructs them to do there. He, he says, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. But there's a therefore at the beginning of that. And the reason there's a therefore, he gave the reason why they can have confidence to go and make disciples of all nations. And the reason that he gave is all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So this is something that we need to know for our own salvation. No matter who you are, if you think to yourself, well, Jesus could never be my Lord because I'm not that kind of person or I'm too sinful or you just don't know what's been going on in my heart or you don't know what's been going on in secret. Well, absolutely he can. And he is Lord already. And you need to submit to him personally. But, but also, it's that as we go out, as we want to see people brought to faith in Christ, Jesus explicitly said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And therefore, make disciples. He, he didn't say, <clears throat> wait around until you feel like you have the right <laughs> to make disciples. He said, I already have the right and I'm going to use you, so go and tell. Make disciples, baptizing them, and, and teaching them to obey all that, that I've commanded. 
And then he says that there's the same salvation for all who call on Christ. So he says here, and I'm, I'm drawing from verses 12 and 13 both here, the same Lord is Lord of all, and he says, bestowing his riches on all who call on him, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So that kind of makes us need to, to answer the question, what does it mean to call on him? I think partly that's answered already in the verses that came before, right? With, with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. But what does it mean to call on the Lord? It, it, we have to know this because there are different traditions that pop up here and there because it's just kind of a thing that comes up in human minds, and sometimes it, it even gets uh, solidified into, into systems of teaching, these teachings that would say, here's how you call on God, Here's how you get your sins forgiven. Repeat these words. Now, in some, some traditions, that's a very, uh, a, a very established thing, to have these sets of words for people to say to try to make them right with God or maybe make them more right with God than they were before they said these words. Catholicism has repetitions of the Hail Marys, repetitions of the Our Fathers, and, and might view in some situations that that would be the way of calling out to the Lord. Or even in the, the Baptist tradition that I was raised in, there was a form of this. And, and we never would have thought of it of being like saying Hail Marys or something like that, but it was called the sinner's prayer. And this idea was that here is the prayer that you repeat. And if we can just get someone to repeat this prayer and to feel that they mean it when they repeat the words then therefore they have called on the name of the Lord and they will be saved. Well, the thing is that that's not what the Scripture says about how to be saved. Now, there are examples of sinners' prayers in the Scriptures. Jesus gives one of the greatest examples of that when he talks about the tax collector in the temple who cries out, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Oh, he was calling on the name of the Lord. And I do think that as sinners come to faith in Jesus, that we're going to call out to him in prayer. We're going to confess our sins. We're going to come to him. We're going to tell him, Jesus, you are my Lord. Save me. That's true. But where we don't want to go with that is we don't want to go to where we say, well, calling on the name of the Lord means we're going to get a room of teenagers to bow their heads and close their eyes and lift their hands to indicate that in their heart they repeated the words with you and then mark down that we had that many conversions that day. That's how, that's, that's how I, I grew up as a teenager. And you know what? I hate to say it, but a massive number of those kids are no longer walking with Christ. It just wasn't true. It just wasn't true. You're not saved by repeating this prayer. So what does it mean to call on the name of the Lord? Well, it says this in Psalm 145, verse 18. It says, The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. You hear that? To all who call on him in truth. There's a big difference between repeat these words and really mean them, and calling on him in truth. What it means to call on him in truth is to come to him in faith with a believing heart that is repentant of our sin as we look to Jesus, to come to him, receive his forgiveness, receive his love. Really, calling on him is, is kind of put here in parallel with the verses that came right before it as, believing upon him. We, we are saved by faith alone. And as we come to faith, we're going to cry out to him in prayer, but it's going to be in truth that is based in a deep conviction of who this Savior is and our need for his forgiveness, our need for his love and redemption and life that he gives. It says in Psalm 86, verse 5, "'For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving.'" abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. To all who call upon you. He says in Isaiah 55, verse 6, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Here's what I hope you will do. I hope you will call upon the Lord. I hope, I hope you'll come to Jesus as he says that he needs to be come to, 
as those who would believe in him and never hunger, those who would come to him and never thirst, to cry out to him and have eternal life because he will save all who call upon him. Not by repeating words, but by coming to him in faith. Call on him and keep calling on him. Of course, in that tradition that I grew up in where the teaching was that you get saved by saying a sinner's prayer, well, a lot of people would try to get saved over and over. <laughs> Say, I don't know if that first sinner's prayer took. I don't know if I, don't know if, if, uh, if I quite meant it well enough the first time. So I'm going to say it again just in case. And no, oh no, I, I sinned. I fell back into that habitual sin of mine. I must be a lost person. I'm going to repeat that sinner's prayer again. Well, guys, that's, that's not what it's talking about with calling on the name of the Lord. It's talking about looking to Jesus. It's not talking about an evaluation of ourselves in how sincere our sinner's prayer was. It's what calling on him is it's directing the attention of our hearts to Jesus knowing that Jesus is Lord of all, knowing that Jesus is Lord of me, knowing that Jesus is the Savior of me, and trusting our souls to him. But it's not just that we call on him in that first initial time when we first are born again, but that those who call on the Lord, this is going to be a way of life, that we keep on trusting in Jesus, we keep on calling on Jesus. It really, as a Christian, it becomes just a gut reaction that the Holy Spirit builds into us that on a daily basis we know we need to cry out to Jesus, keep our faith in him. The kind of faith that calls on God only once and then just forgets about him, that's not faith. That's not faith. But those who call upon him in the sense that it's talking about in these verses are those who keep on trusting, keep on calling upon him, keep on entrusting your soul to Jesus and keep on crying out to him in faith as your personal Lord and Savior. And when we have that faith that calls out to him, it says here, and this is so simple, I hope I'm not making it sound like it's not simple, it's so simple, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The way that he described that in the previous verse is bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Now, we don't want to take that verse out of context and turn into prosperity preachers and say, all who call on him, he's going to bestow riches. So just call on him more, have more faith, sow more seed money to the guy with the private jet. That's not what we're talking about. That is not what we're talking about. I've just been listening to the audio book of uh, Costi Hinn's account of how he came out of the prosperity gospel, and boy, that is ugly stuff. It is ugly ugly stuff. We're not talking about seeking worldly riches here. We're talking about seeking the riches that are our Savior, Jesus Christ. We're talking about treasuring Christ, not laying up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but laying up for yourselves treasures in heaven that are permanent the things of God that are above, setting our hearts there. He bestows his riches on all who call on him. I want to read you some passages about the riches of God's salvation in Jesus Christ. He says in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Again, don't twist that verse into thinking Jesus died so you could be rich. What that's talking about is that Jesus left heaven and went to the cross so that you could go to heaven. (laughs) That's what he's talking about. He poured himself out so that we could have eternal life as children of the king of kings. He says in John 6.35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He's not talking about saying, come to me and you'll never have to worry about how you're going to pay your grocery bill. He's saying, come to me and you will find eternal satisfaction. Eternal satisfaction you will never lack. 
In Ephesians 1, 7, he says, in, in him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. The riches that he's talking about is that he is gracious toward us. He forgives our sins, and he gives us redemption and eternal life. Or in 1 Corinthians 1.5, you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge. It says right there that part of the riches of Christ is that as we trust in Christ, as we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, that, that he enriches us in terms of, of how we speak and what we know and the kinds of spiritual giftings that he would give to us and the ability that he gives us to be able to serve God and to serve people out of love. He says in Ephesians 2, 4, God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That's where we need to set our hope. And here is the beauty and the simplicity of this passage. He bestows his eternal riches on all who call on him. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the grace of Jesus. We thank you that while we were dead in trespasses, while we were broken and poor and had no idea about it because of the lostness of our sin, that Jesus gave up the riches of being on the throne of heaven and became poor for us and poured out himself and died on the cross and made it so that we could be forgiven and brought into the eternal riches of eternal life in Jesus, of treasuring Jesus and being with him forever and ever. Father, we, we just thank you for the beauty of the truth that's here that even though we have these distinctions in terms of our backgrounds and the providence of, of where we've come from, that you've made no distinction, whether it's in how you've created us or the ugliness of the fallenness of our sin or the way of redemption in Jesus. God, thank you for Jesus being Lord of all and saving everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. God, would you grant us the grace to call on you and to continue to call on you as those who have faith in Jesus as Lord. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Let's respond to the preaching of the word with hymn number 519, Jesus is Lord of All, verses 1 and 2.
I'll let you know a couple of announcements as we go. Uh, one is that we have our Sunday social immediately after the service, so I hope you'll be able to stick around for that over in the chapel building as the Kalinskis host us today. Thank you so much for that. And, uh, and then, um, there we go. Here's where I have my announcements. Okay. Uh, we also have the men's ministry this Saturday at 8.30 a.m., so men, mark your calendar for that. Uh, two things that are not in the bulletin yet, but I just want to give you a heads up about these dates coming up. One is that the next youth night is going to be on Friday, March 31st, and then we are going to uh, host a membership class on the afternoon of April 2nd, and so that's for all those who uh, are interested in potentially becoming a member of the church, or maybe you just want to learn more about the church and what that looks like, um, and so if that's something you'd be uh, interested in doing, RSVP to me so we can have enough materials for you. Let's pray as we go. Father, thank you for uh, the, the grace of just being able to set aside this time to gather with the saints and to worship you. I pray that you would bless us as we seek to continue to worship you, even though we're no longer in a worship service, but to give our bodies as a living sacrifice, as our spiritual active worship. Help us to be mindful of the Lordship of Christ over us and over everyone. Help us to be mindful of, of your glory and of others' good as, as you have set us here to work for your glory and others' good. Lord, I pray that you would bless us as we go and share a meal together and fellowship together. I pray that you would uh, build us up as we seek to build one another up in Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.